0: I think what we need to do is explain how our principles of free speech, free inquiry, will help serve the cause of justice. The First Amendment, the constitutional freedom of speech and freedom of conscience that is the bulwark of our democracy.
1: There was a passion in what was being said, affirming this, this what people considered a sacred constitutional right freedom of speech and freedom of association. From the UC National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement, this is Speech Matters, a podcast about expression, engagement, and democratic learning in higher education. I'm Michelle Deutschman, the Center's Executive Director and your host. For our annual Back to School episode, we have the privilege of hearing from Dr. Michael V. Drake, the 21st President of the University of California. President Drake oversees UC's world-renowned university system of 10 campuses, five medical centers, three nationally-affiliated labs, more than 280,000 students, and 230,000 faculty and staff. I'm excited to discuss a range of topics with President Drake, but first, class notes, a look at what's making headlines. The American Bar Association, the accreditation agency for American law schools, is considering requiring new free speech policies at law schools. This comes in the wake of several free speech skirmishes at Yale and Stanford Law that made national headlines, including when Stanford students disrupted the speech of federal judge Kyle Duncan in March. We discussed this incident in episode four with Slate's senior editor, Dahlia Lithwick. If you missed it, take a listen. The new ABA rule would mandate, quote, written policies that encourage and support the free expression of ideas, unquote. The proposal leaves room for law schools to determine what those policies would be on their own, but says they must have some provision forbidding disruptive activities. Despite numerous reports showing that faith in the benefits of higher education is on the decline nationally, a new report shows that the benefits of obtaining a higher education degree go beyond a bump in salary. Key findings from Education for What? A recent report from the Lumina Foundation and Gallup shows that higher education is also associated with, quote, Better health status, better well being, increased likelihood to do work that fits with natural talents and interests, and higher voter participation, volunteerism, and charitable giving. Researchers hope that by highlighting the numerous benefits of higher education, society can work towards changing the negative perception about higher education's value and attract more young students to colleges and universities. The center has a headline of its own this month. At the end of August, we dropped our latest round of fellows research on free expression, academic freedom, and advocacy. Our 2022-2023 class of fellows included students, professors, and senior administrators who explored issues related to speech, social media, and self-censorship in higher education. I encourage you to take some time to look through their findings. Many of the projects include practical resources that listeners can apply to their day-to-day work on campus. To see all of their projects, click the link in the podcast notes or visit freespeechcenter.universityofcalifornia.edu. Now back to today's esteemed guest, Dr. Michael V. Drake, president of the greatest public university system in the world. I want to highlight that among the plethora of things he is responsible for, President Drake is also the Chair of the Center, and I want to start our our conversation by thanking you for your support of the Center and the work that we do.
0: Well, thank you. The work is really important. Pleased to be here.
1: Thanks. We agree on that. So before we jump into a discussion of speech and engagement at the UC and across the nation, I'm hoping that you could maybe reflect on an experience that you had when you were a student, uh, whether that was as an undergrad or a grad or a medical school, where you encountered a speech challenge or needed to use your voice.
0: Well, thank you. It's a fascinating question. Thinking back now, that's now many, many years ago. It, it, two things two things occurred to me. The first is that I, I was in medical school and, and college and medical school, late 60s, 1970s, kind of in the post-civil rights movement when the institutions that I was attending had only recently, only at that moment, really opened their doors to people of color, to African Americans. And so to be honest, every day felt like I was using speech to create a uh, new future. Every, every day was a new day. It felt like we were moving forward into a, a, a void. And so I felt that everything that I did and said was viewed and evaluated by the enterprise as really sort of an aggressive form of speech they, that that people like me belong here and we can do this work was I thought would have thought that in some way every day. So not to not to, to focus too much on that, but that's that's what I would have felt in those days. I actually was remembering specific actual circumstance where I was in medical school and uh, another medical student and I, Mike, he was a good friend of mine. We had the same name. Uh, we uh, were uh, examining patients and having to present our patients and their findings to our attending physician. And we were there with actually a third student, so two of us plus a third student, all presenting our patients. The third student presented his patient to the uh, attending uh, uh, professor, and was and the patient was lethargic, and and our our colleague was describing why this was the case. And I won't quote it exactly, but uh, the uh, uh, patient was Latino and the professor made uh, these racist comments about Latinos, like, whoa. And uh, and so the conversation kind of went on and my friend Mike and I, as I remember, kind of looked at each other and n- none of us in the room were Latino, um, but we looked at each other and and Mike was uh, pretty outspoken and, you know, a lot of self-confidence and, and he said just uh, uh, really Pretty surprised, and 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 uh, and the professor said, "Surprised at what?" And then Mike said that you'd make such a racist statement. I mean, that's really pretty surprising. And and the guy was a very powerful surgeon, and he went, he exploded, he went ballistic, um, screaming and shaking and pointing his finger. And um, and I remember the line he said to me. He pointed to me, and he said, uh, "And I, He kind of calmed a bit, and I said, "Well, we were just saying that if the patient were here, he would have been offended." By what you just said, and I remember him pointing his finger at me, and he said, "Offended, offended." I'll tell you who's offended. <laughs> he starts yelling and screaming at us, and so the two of us kind of were there, standing up for what we believed was the importance of treating patients with respect and not being racist, you know. And, and we're getting this, you know, huge uh, blowback. We then went together to meet with the uh, director of the course and kind of lodged uh, an appropriate uh, complaint, and uh, you know it all—it all kind of worked its way out. I mean, there's another part of the story later on, but uh, it just was one of those times when it seemed like you—you you kind of had to stand up for what was right, and—and and I'll say, if I if I may, in our sharing this with our professor, we were both calm and. You know, say, well, we were just surprised by this, and my goodness, and he's red in the face, screaming, and everything else, and so help. I think me and both my friend Mike, both of us, to have ourselves there to kind of give each other calm support as we were uh, carrying out this message of righteousness. You know, the the third student, um, who was uh, not a person of color who was there, uh, Mike was also African-American, I should say that. So the two of us were African-American. The guy who presented the patient was not, he didn't say a word, you know, the whole time he just sat there, uh, not letting this wash over him. But it was an interesting circumstance where it seemed like he had to stand up for what was right. And um, I haven't told that story in decades, but it was um, interesting.
1: Thank you for telling the story for so for so many reasons. Um, I think it's so important, um, especially for the listeners, to know that someone like you in your position still had to struggle with those kinds of things. And I'm sure so many listeners know what the right thing to do was, but you and Mike did it. And that took a lot of courage, um, especially given the fact that this was a powerful surgeon, um, and you had each other as allies. I I do have to ask, you know, uh, was there any ramifications later on for what you wanted to do? Kind of were you able to sort of stay out of this professor's way? Um, I want to know the, the end of the story before we go to the next question, if you don't mind.
0: Yes. And, and let me say, I appreciate what you said. These things are frightening and, and you're vulnerable and worried and at risk. All those things were true. I'm going to tell you the truth about what happened. I try not to be too weird about it. He, he was in fact a very powerful, among surgeons, he was a powerful surgeon. So he's well-known, uh, a powerful person. And we were worried. I, I, I worried about what was going to happen. Well, how were we going to pass the class or what was what was going to happen? And my, I'm gonna sound nerdy. I'm gonna sound nerdy. It, it, the the next week, it was my time to present a patient. So this, each of us did it one week. And so I, um, uh, uh, nerdy, I worked like extra hard, and went back to the library to the original literature and everything else. And I I I did it like a really great job on the presentation the next week. And I remember that the I got a write up from this guy at the end of the course. And I got a great grade. I got a, the highest grade, you know, that's great. And he said something like this is many years ago, but it was something like, yeah, this is really was terrific. He's done a great job. You know, he'll be a fine uh, physician someday if he keeps performing at this level, which I doubt he will be able to do. <laughs> so it was, there was a, uh, you know, it was like, yeah, great. If you can keep this up, but, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I bet you can't. And, uh, so, so, I remember his name to this day, and, um, you know, uh, I've tried to keep up a good standard since then, but it was a good... You know. I'm sure
1: Well I thought maybe you were going to go to a place where maybe he changed, but it sounds more like it's kind of like what my mom says, a leopard doesn't change their spots. So, but... Interesting. And and just so you know, in terms of nerdiness, I, I I don't know if you have figured this out. This this podcast is populated by nerdy guests and listened to by nerdy yeah. <laughs> listeners. So this is perfect. And actually your story I think is a really nice segue to the next question I want to ask you about, which is obviously something you're familiar with, which is just the center is constantly thinking about and trying to respond to the perceived tension between, you know, expression and robust speech and other institutional values, right? Like diversity and equity and inclusion. And I'm curious, as someone who has spent, you know, your entire career, decades on college campuses, have you seen the focus on DEI sort of change and the tenor of the conversation change, you know, about whether they contrast or conflict with each other versus rather they complement each other. I, I guess I'm trying to say, how has that conversation evolved over time from your vantage point?
0: Let me, let me say one more thing about my prior experience, then go to that conversation evolution. So let me say that we when we ran into this particular opponent, who was um, uh, very, he turned out to be a person who believed the kind of things we heard him say. So he that was really who he was. He was not a thoughtful, generous person. You know, my friend Mike Ward and I both continued to work hard and did great in, in medical school and and, uh, and and we did fine. He sort of faded in uh, his importance and his influence. That's the surgeon uh, there. So the, the world kind of moved past him and we were able to move in a part of the world that was going forward. So it turned out to be, it, 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 uh, we were proud of having done what was right, and we were pleased that we could do what was right and stand up for what was right and continue to progress forward, and he became irrelevant to us. And, and so that's, that's the, uh, what I remember about that. I'd say about the conversation on diversity and inclusion, from every day, from, I mean, I'm, I, that, that story was 50 years ago. Uh, and all of those days, in that moment, there was that friction between uh, diversity and inclusion uh, on the one hand, and the things that the enterprise viewed as being outstanding on the other. And my impression always, the, the work that I saw always, told me that the two were modifiers of each other. With more inclusion and more diversity, you had more excellence. And in fact, they were necessary for, certainly diversity and inclusion were necessary for excellence at the highest level. But you had to continue to push that forward. You had to continue to push that forward because the people like this surgeon and the others who were in positions of power, particularly back in the day, either didn't believe that or didn't know it or didn't want it to be true. And so there was there's always been that tension. And then lately, even I mean to, to this very day, the 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 tension that we're seeing on things like even teaching the history of race um, in this country that those things are politicized, just lets us know the work has to continue. We have to continue to, I think, push through through that. And, and, and that's always gonna be part of our, um, that's an opportunity for us that, that remains.
1: Yeah, there is so much work to do. And um, I think part of it is just maintaining energy and hope, um, at least from my perspective, as you move forward. Because, you know, you read the news sometimes and it it feels like you could go down sort of a hopeless path, but we need to, you know, move forward. And speaking of moving forward, you know, you've just, I've asked you to kind of look a little bit, you know, at the past. And now I kind of want to ask you um, to look in the other direction, which is to look ahead, right? I mean, with the presidential election moving into, I was going to say higher gear, but maybe it's higher, higher gear, you know, yeah. and pundits and, and candidates increasing their use of higher education as a political wedge issue. I'm wondering how you see UC continuing to advance, you know, its free speech legacy and, you know, advocate for academic freedom and institutional autonomy as as we move forward.
0: Well, I think these things are extraordinarily important to higher education broadly. The, the University of California very proudly has a tradition of First Amendment scholarship, as as well as the uh, sort of legacy of really being a place where we practice free speech and listening to people and being inclusive in uh, our ability to hear ideas from different perspectives. Uh, and I think that's critical to us and who we are. I think it's critical as we move forward. I, I think that academic freedom is one of the most important things that we have to protect, and that's the ability for knowledge seekers to be able to use everything at their, at their disposal to be able to gain knowledge and truth and try and clarify that and then share that broadly. I think it's really, really important. So I think it's, 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 it's critical to us. And we see in this time when there is uh, so much rhetoric uh, shifting back and forth and people e- either are paying fast and loose with the truth or in circumstances that we see like stunningly, actively promoting things that we know and they know are not true it's it's um stunning to me i still believe we have to continue to focus on what's true focus on uh sharing our perspectives uh, focus on being engaged in the dialogue and doing our very best to let that um, fiat luxure let that light of truth be something that can guide our way forward
1: absolutely i love that um we're going to just dig a little bit deeper. You know, California is lucky in so many ways, and we have not faced the types of legislative infer- interference that Texas, that states, pardon me, like Texas and Florida and Mississippi and Tennessee, you know, the list goes on, are struggling with. And I'm wondering, does UC have a responsibility to speak out or take action in the cases where it's occurring at, kind of outside of our, you know, our blue bubble? And, you know, what should our roles at university look like vis-a-vis what's happening, you know, in other places and to other higher educational institutions?
0: Well, I guess, uh, you know, as you are speaking, I was thinking back to my my story with my friend, Mike, you know, from back in the day. And I think that that truth is a really powerful weapon. And, you know, we work actively with our faculty in a shared governance way that the University is, is guided forward and being able to have that academic freedom, being able to focus on the truth. I think those things are, are critical for us. And so the I think we need to speak the truth uh, locally, regionally, nationally, wh- wherever there are opportunities. And you mentioned a variety of states and there are more where there is political influence, where there are political influences, that are squeezing down on what's allowed to be shared uh, in, in the university and higher education institutions. I think it's a, a a real risk, and it's something that we have to continually push back against and speak out on. And so, I think it's a it's an important part of our of our role.
1: Yeah, I see a couple of different threads from your story, which is you know what you were talking about is being vulnerable, taking risks, having courage, and I think those things can apply to individuals like it did to you and Mike, but also you said institutionally and then much more globally for what it's worth. I have two preteen kids and there's a lot of discussion about why people are allowed to lie
0: mm-hmm.
1: in public office or in other places. And it's hard to explain it, but I think that I like what you said, which is truth is a weapon. And so to continue to emphasize for them that that's the way that we're going to like move forward. I want to ask you a little bit more from kind of the medical practitioner and, and professor that you are. Medical professionals across the US have been grappling with growing restrictions and criticisms of how they communicate with their patients. And, you know, we saw this during the pandemic. You came on to our Speech Matters conference to talk about that with the head of the Department of Health for California. We see it today with certain states limiting information that doctors can share with patients about reproductive care or gender affirming care. And, you know, in your role as a doctor, sort of what is your take on this?
0: You know, my role in, in my medical career, I, was, I happened to be over at one of our hospitals earlier today and, you know, just was thinking about those days. I was always taught that you focused on the patient and your job was to use the knowledge that you have, the training that you, you have, the facilities that you had to be able to help that patient move forward in their lives. And you weren't there to judge them or any of the other things that might come from the outside. Your focus was on the patient and helping the patient to, to thrive. And I I that's been a guiding principle for me from the very beginning and so when I see that legislative or other kinds of influences would tend would wish to limit what medical professionals can use in working with their patients to help their patients thrive, it strikes me as being uh, entirely inappropriate. The knowledge, I believe, is power and knowledge is, is freedom. I think that patients we need to respect our patients. They, they deserve the, the best of our judgment and to, to, to use our best knowledge to try to help them to, to move forward. And so things that would by policy limit what we can do or how we can help someone, to me, I find um, I'd use a big word about like really bad. You know, it's really, really a, a bad thing. And, and, and so we really wanna try to create the place where the patient can seek our care. We can provide care to the best of our ability to help that person move forward in their lives and, and reach their full human potential in in every in everything that we do.
1: And I'm imagining, obviously, I can't speak from experience, that we're going back to those qualities of vulnerability and you know courage, because I imagine whether you're a doctor or a librarian, if you're breaking the law or what you know, is currently the law, that can be really frightening. And I don't know if there's other tangible things we can say to those people except to um, try to take those courageous steps.
0: Well, and I'll say who's vulnerable really is the patient. You're right. I mean, the patient comes to us because they're vulnerable and they're in need. And our privilege is to be able to help that person. And when they're outside forces to say, well, you could help this person, to this extent or in these ways, but we want to limit that, that to me is unethical and just highly, highly regrettable. And we need to do all that we can to make it that people can get the help that they, you know, we have lots of people who need help and we can't get it to them in the circumstances where we can get the help to people. We have to be allowed to be able to support them. And, and so we want to, we'll continue to push as hard as we can on, Allowing the doctor-patient relationship to be protected, allowing truth and knowledge to be the underpinning of medical treatment. And I think that's that's our, our daily duty.
1: I'm tempted to go and divert into talking to you about the American healthcare system, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to hold back that urge. And I wanted just to follow up, um, you know, you talked about your experience um, while you were getting your medical education. You know, a lot of the very high profile events on speech that we hear about are at law schools or the social sciences or the humanities. But I have to imagine that these issues regularly surface in the context of medical education and practice. And I'm curious, you know, what your experience, you know, with expression issues in the world of medicine has been, you know, whether that's 10 years ago or five years ago, or as recently as, you know, the visit to the hospital that you made, anything that you can share with us with things that you see coming up?
0: Yeah, I th- you know, a lot of that voice, you mentioned that, that social sciences or law schools where there are people using speech in a public setting, a big audience, um, uh, statements that have a lot of import. In the medical circumstance the conversations tend to be smaller they they're they're very very important they deal with the health and safety of the people that we're we're dealing with but the conversations tend to be smaller and one of our one of the requirements of medicine to be able to be practiced at the highest level is that you create a safe platform for patients to be able to share what's true uh, for them that they can share their truth share their circumstance and you receive that information in a non-judgmental way, and use that information for on the behalf of the of the patient, and and then the system has to be able to handle that information uh, fairly and with respect. And I would say that the the time when I would see speech and and opinions kind of clashing, uh, one time when I would see it happening is really when. Uh, people within the healthcare system are advocates for patients in one way or the other, and and so there is a chance to say that you're going to advocate for this patient or for these patients in this particular circumstance, and and it's a very very important part of the responsibility we have to be the best practitioners we can.
1: I, it's interesting to use the word advocacy for patients, um, which of course is part of the duty. Um, I often feel like I have to advocate on behalf of myself, right? And so I guess it's both. But you know, much like a lawyer who has to zealously advocate on behalf yeah. of their client, I guess that that's a doctor's um, responsibility as well.
0: You, I, you know, I would say that uh, I appreciate that all of us from time to time have to be our own advocates, and particularly in the complex system that we have the in the ideal, the, the system is your advocate. You know, you show up and the, the doctor and the healthcare providers are your advocates. That's their, the, their role is to be your advocate in helping you to get what you need to take, uh, to uh, create the healthiest life for yourself. And so again, I I was always trained to think that way, that my job was to help the patient move forward or when we have hospitals or we have clinics now, I'm not so much individual patients, but our facilities that the concept is you can walk in and then the entire enterprise is geared toward helping you do better. And that, that, that's the goal.
1: Well, and you know, like you said, we're going to move forward and keep working and hopefully that goal will be a reality in more places. Um, I want to shift gears a little and sort of move from kind of the expression part of our the Center's mission to the civic engagement piece, which is also central um, to the Center's work. As I'm sure you know, in the past five years, the Center has funded over 83 valuing open and inclusive conversation and engagement projects, which we call VOICE. And while voting is an essential element of democracy, we've really tried to emphasize how being civically engaged means more than just casting that ballot. And I know how important these issues and programs um, are across UC. And I wondered if there were any that you're particularly proud of or want to highlight, again, especially as we move into what feels like, you know, a constant election cycle.
0: Well, very much so. I I mentioned my own uh, uh, schooling and a lot of my schooling followed changes in voting patterns in the 1960s that then Created elected representatives and created opportunities for people like me to uh, enter a, a broader array of, of higher education institutions, and and then other freedoms. I mean that, that was one thing that was specific to my life, but I saw a variety of things change in the country as we moved from the sort of Jim Crow world in, that I'd grown up in to one where at least uh, by uh, statute, one was the, the the freedoms were available to more more freedoms were available to more. More people. So I've, I've always been uh, very much, uh, it's always been clear to me how important it was for people to be involved civically, how important it was to vote. And I'm really proud of a lot of efforts that we've done on our campuses. Our students have done a variety of voter registration and get out the vote drives. It's, uh, it's happened over several elections, and it's a wonderful thing to see that the, the rates of voting on our campuses and in our campus communities are higher than in many other parts of the, the community. And so that, I think that's great. We just opened a new building and center in Sacramento that's called the UC Student and Policy Center. It's in Sacramento. It's um, about uh, 300 yards from the state capitol. and it's a place for uh, fellowships and internships that UC students uh, will come. Will the students will come and have fellowships and internships there to be engaged with elected officials and their and their staff, and to talk about how important it is for us to be connected to our our partners in elective office and. I think that's that's very, very important. I love seeing our students involved at that level. And that's great when we go to visit our staff, our government staff in, in Sacramento, the state capital, or when we're in Washington, uh, visiting people on the Hill, watching our students uh, in their roles as staffers and other people, elected officials, uh, really helping to shape the, the future of the, of the government. So I, voting, really, really important. Civic engagement, really important being involved with the actual wheels and gears of government really important. And we try to do the best we can with that.
1: I will share that um, I did, I'm going to date myself, but in uh, the summer of 1995, I spent the summer at UC, through UCDC working for the Anti-Defamation League. And then when I graduated from law school, I went back to work there because I had interned there when I was a college sophomore and I spent 15 years of my career there. So these programs and internships and opportunities really, really do matter.
0: Um, right. So I just
1: wanted to emphasize that. Um You know, I have the privilege of visiting UC campuses and talking with students and staff and faculty about the First Amendment and expression. And, you know, especially in light of the recent Supreme Court case um, about 303 Creative, right, for everyone who needs a quick review, that was the graphic designer not wanting to design websites for same-sex weddings. I'm asked more and more frequently about the value of the First Amendment, and whether it really its only value is just to be weaponized for um, partisan purposes. So I'm wondering what you would say if you were asked this question, which is like. People want to know why should they still have hope in the First Amendment, especially when it feels like it's being used um, as a defense? I mean, certainly in the recent indictments of um, the former president and in 303 Creative to potentially deny services to same-sex couples. What do you say? And I realize this is a hard question, and I think about this every day. But what might you say uh, to students, staff or faculty who are wondering if it's worthwhile anymore?
0: You know, I think it served us well. Um, for nearly 250 years, you know, we're rolling up on that and it, uh, it's in its simple language as one reads through it. Uh, it has a simple, straightforward purpose. And um, it says that, that we have a marketplace of ideas and we um, ought to allow people to share those ideas because the body politic, all of us can evaluate them fairly and appropriately and, and make our best informed decisions if we can do that. So I always felt that a really important part of what it meant to be a university was to be a, a place for those ideas, and to really protect that the, the sanctity of that place. We weren't a referee. We weren't, um, you know, weren't to make judgments or whatever. Our job was to protect the uh, place where people could share those ideas. And I think that it's we, we've seen the last several years uh, different ways that the First Amendment has been, I, I think its meaning has been perverted and it's been almost weaponized to be able to stifle speech in, in some cases or uh, in this, in the case that you've seen recently, the preposterous concept that the you can mislead and uh, you can lie to people and mislead them and they can then uh, break the law, but it doesn't count because you said it and therefore it's Protected, it's it's a non it's a nonsensical uh, it's a nonsensical argument, uh, and I think that we that that, it, that will it will fail. And you know we have ups and downs, we have good and bad, we have things that work and things that don't work, and sometimes we're on the downs and we have to push through. We just have to push through, and you know that thing that lasted and it was true for centuries um, uh, will still be true in the end, and we just have to make sure not to be swayed in in our uh, devotion to uh, seeking the truth and um, and being a platform for people to share ideas,
1: right? We have to believe and and I do that the pendulum will swing back from, from where it is. Um, so, this is my favorite question to get to ask you, because I know that playing and listening to music is one of your greatest passions. And I'm not going to pass up an opportunity to get song recs from you. Uh, letting our listeners know, the last time we were lucky enough to get to talk to President Drake, um, he shared three songs that he felt like represented today's civil rights movement. And today, I want to ask for some songs um, that you feel speak to what the center focuses on, which is you know expression, engagement, and democratic learning. And what we'll do is, you um, we'll then pull those songs and make a short playlist that people can listen to um, after they listen to our conversation. So um, what, what are you thinking?
0: So a couple I, I would think of. Um, so one that I think of is um, there's a song by Hel- Harold Melvin and the blue notes uh, called wake up everybody. Okay. So I'd have, I'd play that three or four times. That, I mean, that, that, that would be my, that would be several choices in, in this list. That's a great uh, song to listen to. In this world, because it, it it actually talks about what I think it means to be woke, in in a non in a, in an of course way, it means to pay attention. It means to keep your eyes open. It means to to listen. It means to be thoughtful. It's not a not a bad thing, <laughs> you know. It means wake up, everybody. You know, uh, pay attention. You know, open your eyes. So Wake Up Everybody by Harold Melvin, the Blue Notes. Teddy Pendergrass is the um, uh, singer. Before he had much, he on to have a great solo career, but uh, Wake Up Everybody is one. I taught a course, you know, with um, our colleague, uh, Dean Chemerinsky for years, and we focused on songs that we thought in, encapsulated the civil rights period and that 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 awakening in our, society. And so one that we always liked from that uh, playlist was one song called A Change is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke. And and it, there, particularly as you listen to that, you, you know, the first line is, I, I was born by the river in a little tent. If you listen to the way he he sings the word born, it's almost like he encapsulates the majesty and the pain of childbirth in in the way the word comes out of him. It, it was born, you know, really, it's, it's really, a, the word is kind of born and coming to something that, that's musical at the end, but it has a, uh, uh, a, a, a pain, you know, and a, and a, and a, an effort to it. And, uh, so I, I always like that. And it was a very hopeful song at the end of the, the day. You know, it means you start with in, in all of the, of this pain and effort and, and you press through and, and things can happen that are, um, are terrific. And then I hate this. I mean, this is not exactly, it's not modern, you know, and it's, it's, it's not. It, a, no exactly. one said it
1: had to be modern. It's okay. <laughs>
0: yes. But I, today, I, again, I was, uh, uh, I mentioned I was uh, in, in San Francisco earlier today and I was in a store and, and the, the, they were playing kind of blue um, uh, uh, a, a couple of songs from the, the, the record Kind of Blue by Miles Davis from about 1956, I think it is. Um, and, you know, he, I was just listening to it and saying, my goodness gracious, all these years later, what a perfect expression of the kind of art emerging from that time and looking forward to the, the, the bright awakening of, I used the word awakening a couple of times in this, this minute, but, but that was a, an era when jazz was kind of coming together and, and was sort of hopeful. And, uh, and people uh, were creating kind of a new music that was hopeful, particularly for the African-American community to have kind of an identity and to look forward to things that could come together. So I've always, it's uh, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, uh, Cannonball Adderley, a great, uh, great sextet. And, uh, and I heard that, that was just on in a, in a store that I was in uh, earlier today. And I thought, oh, there's kind of blue. It's a, it's a, terrific, uh, a terrific record.
1: Well, so now you know what I'm going to be listening to later this afternoon, Um, but thank you for that. I really appreciate it. And I think my last question for you um, as we, you know, sort of run to the end of our time is really just about, I mean, I know Berkeley, of course, and Go Bears and Merced have started, but, you know, still the beginning of the school year is a couple of weeks out and just maybe how or what faculty and students and staff can Be thinking about in the back of their minds about expression as they return you know back to campuses i don't know if you have any you know words of wisdom or thoughts um that you want to share
0: yeah i don't know about wisdom i do have the thoughts and you know i'd say that uh, we are really privileged to uh, have these institutions in our midst and to be able to be associated with them and engage with them the students who come To us come with such hope and with such promise for the future. And we have the the great opportunity to work with them on creating a pathway toward that future. It's a two-way street. We learn from them as we try to share things that we've learned with them. And, And every year we have this great renewal at this time when we're all coming back together with great energy and then creating that school year unlike any ones before because the circumstances and the knowledge and the things we're sharing are are new uh, as as they're being created and we have the chance to do it all again and have a great school year we go forward you know in our cycle in the spring we have this uh, great uh, uh, celebration when people are graduated and put out into the world we take a breath and then we start all over so we're we're thinking now about bringing in this new group of students we have the largest and most diverse class of students that we've ever admitted. We're very, very excited about that. We'll work to help them to thrive and excel like like never before and then make sure that we continue to stay focused enough to appreciate the privilege that it is for us to be able to be involved with them in that journey. I
1: am so moved by that. Um, and I, I really like that perspective of that. Every beginning of the school year is totally unique um, that it, in some ways it, it is a repeat, but really it's different because of who is coming together and the time. So I'm going to take that with me. And this has been a really delightful and insightful conversation. And I'm really appreciative of your taking time away from, you know, running the university to talk with me and talk with our listeners. And I just appreciate your kicking off this unique school year, this episode, and it's just been a pleasure.
0: Well, thanks very much. Happy to do it. You can send me a text, and let me know what you think about the songs and, and we will talk soon.
1: OK, I'm going to look forward to that.
0: OK, take care.
1: Thank you so much to President Drake for joining us this month. Please check out the episode notes for links to his song suggestions. Next month, we'll be talking about the indictments of former President Donald Trump and his use of free speech as a defense in the ongoing cases against him. In the meantime, please check out our fellows research and register for the next Fellows in the Field workshop on social media and speech, which is taking place on October 24th. Talk to you next time.